What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Earnings season is off to a surprisingly strong start. In fact, too strong, says one of our guests. He's bracing for earnings to drop 30%. He'll tell us why he's so concerned and the one sector he is bullish on right now. Plus, the lack of listings are helping home builders to a near record share of the housing market. So if they have the edge, can you own them for the long run? We'll debate that. And Google's CEO says brace for impact. AI will soon affect knowledge workers like writers, accountants, and software engineers. We'll speak to two CEOs who have a front row seat to those changes. But first, let's get today's markets. A lot of red today. Not for the Russells, though, Doc. And not, not as much either. And it's not dramatically red, Kelly. That's the important part. So call it stable. Uh, to Kelly's point, if you look at the markets, it is a sea of red, but it's not a massive sea of red. The Dow Industrials are down 29 points, about one-tenth of 1%. One the S&P is at 41.29, still above 4,100, down about seven points or two-tenths of 1%. Uh, it's been an up-and-down day. At the highs of the session, we were actually up about six handles, six points there, and down about 13 at the lows. So if you kind of see it tilting towards the lows, it is, but again, dramatically not so in terms of the overall percentage moves. And the Nasdaq is the real laggard, if you will, down about one quarter of 1%, 34 points on the composite, 12,089 the last trade there. One place that is seeing some real green today, it's a continuing near-term uptrend for many of the solar stocks out there. Today's is driven by Enphase Energy, which is up about 7% right now, a huge gainer in the S&P 500 after analysts over at Piper Sandler upgraded that stock to an overweight, saying that they thought some of the over the, the, the at least the dynamics in the U.S. residential market were overdone to the downside. It's going to come out a little bit better than they had thought in the previous in the past. That's helping to carry the rest of the industry up. Solar Edge is up 4.5%. First Solar up 5%. Sun Power you can see there as well. And the Invesco Solar ETF ticker TAN. TAN is also up there. So keep an eye on solar. It's been a rough year. But the last couple of months have been pretty decent for those. And then the stocks of the day right now, the worst performing stock in the entire S&P 500 is State Street. That custody bank is now down about 11% in trading right now. That's a huge move lower for a bank of its size after it came out with profits and revenues that both missed analyst estimates, driven in part by lower asset values. Remember, a lot of big asset managers use companies like State Street to custody their assets, and they charge a fee on those. Those fees are down. Some customer outflows as well. Other custody banks, though, are taking it on the chin in sympathy, Kelly. Northern Trust down 3%. Even Bank of New York Mellon is down 5.5% as well, all off of State Street's results. Some of these guys, Northern Trust doesn't report results until next week, so we'll see if those custody banks can find some footing there, Cal. Back over to you. All right, Dom, we'll see you in a sec. Thank you. Now, believe it or not, we've come through the start of earnings season in much better shape than usual. All but three of the 30 companies who first reported beat estimates, and by 9% in aggregate, according to Credit Suisse. The firm's Jonathan Golub noting that large beat is unusual when the ISM manufacturing index is in contraction, below 50 as it is now. And to be sure, earnings are still expected to drop more than 5% for the second straight quarterly decline. 
So are investors too pessimistic or not pessimistic enough? My next guest says this could be just the beginning of the pain that is to come because in a recession, earnings typically drop by 30%. Joining me now is Jason Trenner, chairman of Strategus Research Partners, a Baird company. And David Bonson is with us as well. He's chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. Welcome to you both. Jason, I don't mean to make you sound like such a Grinch here, but uh, just kind of putting in context <laughs> some of the earnings uh, that were, it's an odd season, better than expected, but could still get a lot worse from here. What jumps out to you so far? Well, listen, I think, uh, Kelly, as, you know, as Damon Runyon said, the, the race doesn't always go to the swift or, nor the battle to the strong, but that's the way to bet. And, and from our perspective, you have to play the odds. And the odds, I would argue, favor a recession later this year. Uh, and that's because Fed's tightened as aggressively as they have. And also now with the, the banking uh, crisis that we have or the banking problems, if you will, uh, whatever your odds of recession were a month ago, that one would have to think they're, they're higher now. And as you pointed out, back to 1930s, uh, earnings fall about 30% on average during a recession. The median uh, is uh, about 20%. We have them down uh, 10% for this year. Um, and I do think I want to see particularly some of the consumer companies and some of the, I would say, some of the mid-tier banks, I want to see them report. Um, to have a better idea. And it's, the, the earnings are one thing, and I think the guidance is, is quite another, especially since some of these issues really came in the tail end of the, thir of the first quarter. So I don't want to laugh it away. The market's up, uh, and uh, our view is a little bit on the defensive. But I, I still think if I'm playing the odds, I want to be cautious here. Yeah, David, I, I mean, I don't know if I would say you have the same view or a similar view, but I was struck that you say, look, the Fed should pause. The more hikes they do now, the more cuts they could end up doing before the end of the year. Is that right? Well, I'm one who believes that the Fed has been exacerbating a boom-bust cycle for my entire adult life, and that that's exactly what I think will happen here. I think if they over-tighten, it will just simply mean that they are over-easy later, and I'm really tired of that cycle. I think it's very unhelpful. I think it mostly makes uh, people more asset-rich and is really very bad for our society at large. But that is what I think they'll do. I think they'll end up over-tightening. They uh, won't be satisfied until they break something. There's no possible way they can actually believe that um, people losing jobs is a good thing and a necessary thing to deal with inflationary problems that at this point are clearly rapidly disinflating. So for them to over-tighten, I just think, means that they're going to end up uh, cutting rates and eventually we'll be heading back towards uh, zero bound if it were to get bad enough. Uh, that entire cycle of non-moderate monetary policy is completely unhealthy. No, I, I think that's well said, Jason. We talk a lot here about how they don't rely enough on leading indicators, on forward-looking um, sort of data points from the market. It's all just kind of rearview mirror. And Jason, I'm just one of the things that I hear so much lately is is people who are dismissive of the recession talk because they say, "Oh, this is the most telegraph recession we've ever had." Never. Well, so then we should do something about it. We should try to stop it from happening, right? Yeah. I mean, that just means we've had months and months and quarters and quarters of sitting here waiting for it and saying, well, the Fed's going to keep hiking. And yeah, we're, I mean, I wish that they would be more proactive in saying, yeah, we're a little scared when we look at the yield curve, too. Yeah, we see ISM. Yeah, we see the leading indicators. Yeah, we're worried about credit and not just going, well, unemployment and inflation and we're just going to, you know, we'll just see where we are. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great point, and the you know Fed is very model driven. Um, I believe it you know, has about twenty five thousand employees, a thousand PhDs. 
Um, so probably, you know, nothing good happens with when you got a thousand PhDs around uh, looking at these things. And the, their, from my understanding, you know, their main focus is the Phillips curve, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, they look a lot at the labor markets. And, and for them, that is the leading cause of inflation. And so without any sort of meaningful uh, weakness in the labor markets, uh, it's hard to expect them to ease very much or at least slow down. And in our shop, our chief economist, John Rissmuller, is of the view, for whatever it's worth, that the Fed should pause. Uh, and, and especially given the, some of the developments in the banking system, and just give it some time uh, to see. Because the, the lags in, in monetary policy are so long and they're so variable, we really don't know uh, what the impact of the Fed tightening that started a year ago is yet. Right. So, I mean, so we, we, we have a long way to go to figure out what's been done already, and uh, it wouldn't be the worst thing. I, there are other issues that are coming into play. We're going into an election year next year. Um, the, the Fed's credibility, I think, as David highlighted, I think is very much uh, in question. And so there, there are other Concerns here, but I don't. I don't know if it would hurt anyone if they paused and, and and waited to see a little bit longer what the impact of their policies have been thus far. And did you? I don't know, David, if you caught what Janet Yellen said over the weekend, but it, it was a little interesting because she she sort of said that all of the bank problems amounted to the kind of tightening the Fed is trying to accomplish anyway. And you know, we, it's not the kind of language we're really hearing from Powell, at least that explicitly. Um, you know, she, I, she of all people is going to be very careful in making any comments like that. And I wondered if it was meant to be a little bit of a hint about like, you know, hey, maybe it's OK to take a pause here. Well, I certainly took it that way. And I've seen other uh, comments from guys like Larry Summers that I think are, are influential in that orbit of uh, Ph.D. holding conversations. And yet at the end of the day, I question whether or not there is ideologically Phillips curve oriented, as Jason and I suspect they are, or it's um, cover for the fact that at the end of the day, they uh, go until they break something. And that when in 2018, going into 19, when Powell capitulated, there was no change in labor markets. It was purely a matter that credit markets revolted. And credit markets have not revolted this time. It's one of the reasons recession calls right now are not as easy as we want to make them out to be. I respect the way Jason worded it, that there's odds, that he thinks the odds are in favor of it. But that could be 51 percent for all, all we then know. Then why do you think they'll uh, be cutting, David, just because you think inflation's going to recede quickly? I think because it has receded quickly. And if they were looking at an annualized inflation rate over the last six months, instead of still looking at the base effect from a year earlier, I think, and still looking at this obviously antiquated shelter number within CPI, I think they have a two-handle on headline inflation now. And that where there is lumpiness as food and energy go up and down, that nobody in the right mind thinks that's a monetary inflation. And so the Fed already doesn't have an inflationary reason to do so. And the tightening, this is where, I don't say this very often, this is where Secretary Yellen and I agree. Mm -hmm. The banking system did a lot of the tightening for them. You've had hundreds of billions of dollars leave the deposit base to go chase yield and money market. And that extracts from the lending base of the banking system. And that is disinflationary and it is stagnatory. And that's really what the Fed is supposed to be keeping their eye on, not waiting to 
respond right. to a higher unemployment number. No, it's listen, we have to leave it there. But the uh, the added wrinkle is if Jason's right and many others who are bullish on energy right now uh, and what that would do to the infl inflation picture. We won't we won't get into that here. We'll leave it and we'll welcome you both back shortly. J Jason Trenner, David Bonson, appreciate your thoughts here on the Fed and the markets. Let's dig in on the banks now, which are ground zero for concerns about the future health of the economy. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo had those solid earnings and revenue on Friday. This morning, we heard from Charles Schwab, which is still up on better than expected earnings, despite that 11 percent fall in bank deposits. And State Street is the worst stock in the S&P 500 after it missed estimates. It's down 11 percent. M&T Bank, look at that, helping quell some concerns about the smaller banks this morning. It's up 6 percent. And that's where we begin with that rally in M&T after their double digit earnings and revenue beat. Dom Chu is back with that story for us. And we also welcome in Jeff Kilberg. Uh, he's KKM Financial CEO and a CNBC contributor. We'll try to get some trades on these banks, some previews as well. Welcome to both of you. Dom, what jumps out to you about M&T? So the M&T bank story, and again, we look at it in the same way that we look at PNC. Again, not similar banks, but similar in terms of the, the regional presence that they have. So with PNC, we wanted to see about deposits. We're looking at the same thing for M&T. And what they basically showed us is that there hasn't been a massive deposit flight like we have seen at other smaller, especially West Coast-based banks. Now, with M&T, that deposit number shrank about 3%. The company attributes that to some seasonal factors. Some customers, business or otherwise, take more money out at the end of the year, you know, the holidays, and then they kind of do some more movement with that in the first quarter. So that's that 3% drop. But an earnings beat and a revenue beat with an environment right now that doesn't show that they're in the same kind of deposit flight battling mode is reassuring to some investors. And by the way, the reason why M&T is up so much today right now is because it's been one of those regional banks that's been beaten up so much that there's a bit of a relief rally taking sure. effect. Although they were also eager to point out that they are not like Silicon Valley Bank and some of the, the trading problems that they ran into. All right, Jeff, I'll turn to you. M&T, you can extend it to the regionals more broadly if you want. What do you do with them here? Well, Kelly, you know I have nothing but love for my guy, Domino, but I don't have love for M&T. Due to the fact that you have to remember this bank is 120th the size of a Bank of America. And yes, you're seeing it up 6% today off of that net income. And that income doubled. That was very impressive to see. But it's still down 36% in the last six months. So I think you have to understand a stock like this, Kelly, high risk, high reward. I do see on the chart it's broken. It's under its 50-day, under its 200-day moving average. So it looks like there's actually a ton of support in the 90s. I know that's about $25 lower. But M&T, if you want to get into a name like this, it is oversold. But I think there's more room to come down because you're going to see more and more folks move their money away from a regional bank and prefer a big wirehouse where there's just more perceived safety. All right. That brings us to Bank of America, which reports in the morning. They're largely expected to be another big beneficiary of deposit flight, perhaps to a lesser extent. Shares up 2% today and only down 9% so far this year, Dom. What are the keys here? I mean, so, so this is it's very much about beyond the headline numbers, right? We'll watch for the revenues. We'll watch for the earnings per share. But for Bank of America, it's considered one of those money center or, so to speak, wirehouse banks that Jeff kind of just alluded to, it has a banking relationship with half of America wow. with regard to either mortgages, homes, credit cards, outright re retail banking services. So it touches a lot of people. It's the reason why it's seen as that bellwether. What you're going to watch, though, for B of A, though, is something that we haven't talked about as much because we're so focused on deposits. It is actually about sales and trading and capital markets operations. B of A has a decent amount in, in terms of those. And so that sales and trading is going to be big. It's also about whether or not consumers are shifting some of that behavior. Are they using different products? And what about B of A's 
credit loss provisions. That's going to be big. It's, a, it's an indicator because they have so many banking relationships. Yeah. Are they going to up it by how much? And is that the read on the future economy? That's going to be key. And compared with J.P. Morgan, Jeff, J.P.'s all seen as a little bit more kind of like Don was saying, uh, focused on business, perhaps more exposure there, while as Bank of America maybe arguably more consumer facing. Do you like the stock here? I do like the stock here, and I have a, a very emotional attachment to this stock. One of our biggest family offices owned the stock for a long time. So it's hard to believe, Kelly, but just last February in 2022, this stock kissed $50. Here we are down $30. It seems to be building a base, so I think you have the ability to be a buyer here. Talk about the dividend growth. It's a 3% dividend. It's been five quarters, and it continues to grow its dividend by 15%. That's actually nine consecutive years you've seen dividend growth. So this is the second largest bank. I feel comfort buying it here. You have to understand it's in a range, so $33 looks like a short-term target. But I think they're going to knock the cover off the ball in earnings, just like J.P. Morgan did last Friday. All right. So, I mean, come on, 30 to 33. I, you know, I'll, like, we'll hey, take 10%, it. 10%, Kelly. We'll come on, 10%. <laughs> Are we sneezing at 10% now, Dom? No, we're not. No, we're not. Okay. Let's turn okay. finally to Goldman Sachs and really dig into capital markets, Dom. They're only down 1% this year with today's gain. And remember, last quarter was when Goldman reported its biggest earnings miss in a decade with that revenue drop. How are they going to manage now? So this is the interest. It's such a weird, bizarro type world because for B of A, I'm not focused as much on deposits and, and retail banking. I'm focused more on capital markets. For Goldman Sachs, I'm not going to be as focused on capital markets because their FIC franchise, fixed income currency commodities, always decently strong there. There are some trading volatility issues that are going to help drive trading and sales revenues there. I'm focused more on the consumer banking side of things, which is what drove a lot of the downside move in the last quarter. The Marcus division, the one formerly known as, maybe they're not using it as much anymore, but the consumer lending and banking business, it was a high-profile mea culpa from David Solomon, the CEO, and the other folks at Goldman Sachs. What do they do with it? How does it look right now? And by the way, this is all coming out on the same day that Apple just announced that it's got this new savings account yes. feature tied to the Apple card, which is all tied to guess who? Goldman Sachs but by also, the time it's done. But also Apple's offering more than 4%. And, and Goldman, too, I mean, their whole model, it's ironic that they ran into these problems just before people started really searching out the highest deposit, uh, highest uh, earning places for their cash. Well, and, and so, so if you want to look at it on that front, for B of A and for Goldman both, these are mega, mega banks. And they're for their consumer banking franchises will be competing with everybody else for deposits at this point. So that dynamic is going to be something to watch for Goldman. Ironically enough, because we never really talk about <laughs> Goldman from a consumer banking standpoint. Down is up, up is down. Kilberg, what would you do with Goldman here? Well, I want to be a buyer, but I want to be a buyer in a very nuanced way. I'm going to go back to my days in the pit. I want to be a buyer here on a stop. And what does that mean, Kelly? Well, right now, if you look at the 50-day and 200-day moving average, it's very coil. So trading at $339. That 50-day moving average is just at 342. So I want to be a buyer if it goes up there because I think the relative strength and momentum will move the stock higher. But to Dom's point, they're absolutely right when they retired that Marcus platform. So they're going to refocus and talk about the asset and wealth management piece. We don't talk enough about that. That's 30% of Goldman Sachs' total revenue. So I think the stock moves higher, but I don't want to be a buyer here at 339, 340. I want to be a buyer at 342. Okay. Well, real quickly, Jeff, because I know in your opening remarks about M&T, you're a little bit more worried about the downside there. Can the whole markets, can the financials move past more regional bank weakness if that is what you foresee? 
I think they can. It's just going to be a sentiment shift with small businesses and large businesses, how we work with regional banks, unfortunately. You look at XLF, that year to date is down about 5%, so certainly being a laggard. But when you talk about some of the constituents in XLF, you have to understand those bigger banks are going to prevail. And it may not be reality, Kelly, but it's going to be perception where you can have safety in your money at a JP Morgan, at a Bank of America, and some of the smaller banks under $50 billion in market cap, it's going to give some folks jitters, and rightfully so, after Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Yeah. All right. Financial spider, like you said, only down 3%. Guys, thank you both, Jeff Kilberg and our Dom Chu. Coming up, is home builder sentiment sent to break out of its slump? And if so, is it already priced into the builder stocks? We'll ask the street's number one analyst with the builders up about 11% so far this year. Plus, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai says society is not ready for a ramp up of artificial intelligence. Is he just talking his own book? Alphabet shares are down 3.5% today. We'll tell you why. And as we head to break, here's a look back at the broad markets. We see the Russells, the small caps, up two-thirds of 1%. That's the only green on your screen there. Stocks are down fractionally, like Dom said. Yields are up a little bit. Ten-year almost cracking 360. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Homebuilder sentiment inching closer to positive territory. Diana Olick with the numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, not quite there yet, thanks to all kinds of headwinds still hitting the builders. But builder sentiment in April did rise 1 point to 45 on the NAHB index. Anything under 50 is still negative. This is the highest since last September, but the index stood at 77 last April, which was, of course, before mortgage rates really took off. Now, builders are still concerned about higher costs for materials, but they did note that the recent turmoil in regional banks has actually not curtailed construction loans as much as they had feared. Of the index's three components, current sales conditions rose two points to 51, and sales expectations in the next six months increased three points to 50. This is the first time both of these are in positive territory since last June, which is, again, when rates took off. Buyer traffic, however, was unchanged at 31, the first time it has not improved this year. One interesting note, the builder said currently one-third of housing inventory is now new construction, compared to historical norms of around 10 percent. This is close to a record, and it points more at the real shortage of existing homes for sale, not so much to more construction because housing starts haven't really risen lately much. They also said the share of builders reducing home prices continues to drop 30 percent, reporting dropping prices in April down from 35 percent at the end of last year. Kelly. Thank you, Diana. My next guest has a buy rating on every single home builder he covers and says the recent bank turmoil will be a benefit to the bigger names. Let's bring in Stephen Kim, home builder analyst at Evercore ISI. Stephen, welcome. What do you mean by a benefit, by the way? 
Well, I think the main thing here is market share. This is a tough year. Uh, Diana talked about things getting better. We certainly see that, but it's uh, it's really a story this year of market share gain. Consumers right now want to buy homes that they can move into quickly. Now, you can't move into a home quickly unless the builder has already started building it a few months ago. That's called spec building. And regional banks, who really are the primary lender to private builders, they severely restrict that. They want a builder to actually pre-sell the home before they start building it and putting the bank's capital at risk. So therefore, the private builders cannot ramp up their spec building, and they can't get those homes to market that are already previously started. The public builders, no problem. They've got strong balance sheets, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're increasing their spec building. They have more quick move-in homes. They're going to gain market share. I guess it's, you know, two cheers, Stephen. I, I, I feel bad for the small players who are affected like that. What's the overall breakdown for the market in terms of the big versus kind of mom and pop uh, players? Is it 50-50 or, or more lopsided than that? No, it's more lopsided. This is a pretty fragmented business. Uh, when I look at all the public builders combined, they have about 70%, uh, sorry, 30% market share. So private builders comprise 70% of the market uh, as, as, we, as we think about it. So say that one more time. Who's the 30 and who's the 70? So the publics are 30. Wow. The privates are 70. Wow. So you're telling me that the privates who are 70% of the housing market are negatively affected by the inability to access sort of bank credit to build on spec. That's, that's a big blow for inventory. So if people who are listening are trying to buy a house, just be warned. It might be about to get even harder. I think it is an important factor, and it's one I frankly think that the stocks haven't priced in yet. I think investors are still trying to get their heads around, you know, in, in, in inflation, interest rates, and then a recession looming on the other hand. And what they're forgetting here is that the housing market can sort of just sort of stay kind of where it is in this sort of tepid area. But if the builders are gaining share, you're going to get growth, and the stocks should reflect that uh, over the course of the year. Arguably, have the stocks already reflected that? I was just looking at the charts. We're up 11% year-to-date on the XHB. We look like we're a little bit above where we were kind of you know, moving sideways last summer. What, what's that about, and, and what would it take for us to break out beyond that, do you think? Well, Kelly, I think we have to put where they started this year uh, in the proper perspective, because as you know, mortgage rates having basically doubled last year, the streets saw this freight train coming and they got out of the way. And so these stocks were trading at incredibly low valuations. In fact, today, even with this move that you've described, the small cap home builders are trading at more than a 10% discount to their current book values, which is an astoundingly low valuation. And those book values are about to be raised because they're all going to be reporting earnings here in the next two weeks. So these are valuations that started the year incredibly low. They are still incredibly low. And this is the opportunity that we think investors have to get in uh, ahead of this market share story that we see developing this year. Who are the builders best positioned on the quick move-in home? QMI, I love the, love the acronym. Yeah. But who are the ones who you think can benefit the most from this? And are they the same as the names that you're most bullish on right now? Or is that just part of the story? You know, if you had asked me that question six months ago or a year ago, I would have given you a list of, you know, a handful of builders that do spec building. And then the rest of the guys sort of insist on building uh, building to order. That's changed. Almost all the public builders at this point have made the adjustment. They see what customers want. They are prepared to give it to them. And so they've all basically switched to becoming more spec building uh, than they used to be. Uh, so honestly, at this point, that's one of the reasons why we don't really think that picking and choosing among the builders is nearly as important as making sure that you own some.
All right, Stephen, thank you so much. Always making the case. We appreciate it. Good to see you, and thanks for your time today. Stephen nice. Kim with Evercore ISI. Coming up, could Samsung ditch Google as its default search engine for Bing? We'll look at what it would take to make a change like that and what it would mean for everyone's bottom line. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with a pretty much even split. That tells you why the Dow's down 26 points today. Visa and UNH are the worst performers, while Walgreens and Boeing are leading the way. Remember, Boeing with that big drop last week on 737 MAX issues. Today, rallying 1%. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A lot more focus on healthcare and biotech, especially after some of the deal-making we've seen lately. Here's an under-the-radar call of the day in that vein. Wells Fargo initiating coverage of Viridian Therapeutics with an overweight and a $46 price target. It's at 26 right now, so that's an 80% upside. And by the way, that price target doesn't even make them one of the top five on the street. The shares have had a tough start to 2023, but they're up about 40% over the past year. Clinical trial results from this company's thyroid eye disease treatment are expected in the second half of this year. And by the way, 14 analysts who cover the stock. Every single one of them has a buy rating. For more, you can head over to cnbc.com slash pro for the whole story. Let's get to Courtney Reagan now. Welcome back, Courtney, for a CNBC News update. Thank you, Kelly. It is great to be here. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Minnesota Court of Appeals upheld Derek Chauvin's murder conviction today after the ex-police officer's attorney asked the court to throw his convictions out. Chauvin's attorney said legal and procedural errors deprived Chauvin of a fair trial. Chauvin is serving a 22-and-a-half-year sentence for the murder of George Floyd. In Russia, U.S. Ambassador Lynn Tracy visited Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovitz today, more than two weeks after he was detained for alleged espionage. Tracy said Gershkovitz is in, quote, good health and remains strong and called for his immediate release. And the Philadelphia Eagles and quarterback Jalen Hurts have reached an agreement on a five-year contract extension. The deal reportedly comes with a $255 million price tag, which would make Hurts the highest paid player in NFL history. He is not hurting with that one. Kelly, back over to you. Courtney, thank you very much, Courtney Reagan. Coming up, is corporate America ready for the AI revolution? Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai says no. Which white-collar jobs are most at risk? We'll find out next. Welcome back to The Exchange. AI back in the spotlight today after a warning from Google CEO Sundar Pichai on 60 Minutes last night. He says society should brace for impact, and he specifically spoke about the implications for corporate America and white-collar jobs. This is going to impact every product across every company, and, and so that's why I think it's a, a very, very profound technology, and so we are just in early days. Every product in every company. That's right. AI will impact everything. I'm joined now by two CEOs with a front row seat to those changes. 
companies and their workforces could be facing. Let's bring in Steve Odlin, CNBC contributor, and Jack Altman, who is CEO of Lattice. Welcome to both of you. It's great to have you here today. And Steve, let me just start with you. Are you already having conversations with companies about how to deploy or use or, or worry about AI? Oh, yeah. The conference board uh, members are all over this, and everybody is is dabbling in it. But, you know, th this concept of AI is a really huge spectrum. You've got everything from quantum computing with advanced autonomous thinking to essentially what is evolved search. And, it, you know, so artificial intelligence is a is a is a tough term. Most of our members are dealing with it in terms of an evolved search engine, either through chat GPS or Bing, but that still has a whole lot of issues with it. Everything from security to privacy to IP issues to how people are using this. You know, it's great for a rough draft if you're putting something together. It's great for, um, you know, behind the scenes, but it still takes a lot of caretaking from human beings in order to make this applicable and something that you'd uh, put right in front of your customers. Yeah, Jack, the analogy that's often made is that back when uh, Microsoft Excel was invented in the 1980s, I think it was, people warned that, you know, all swaths of bookkeepers, it was a huge profession, especially for females across, they said, they're all going to be put out of work. They're never going to find something to do. And of course, Excel just unlocked tons and tons of new jobs and industries and, and you know, different ways of working. And you know, those of us, Tyler Cowen, the others who are kind of more bullish uh, on AI, or at least say you can't, quote unquote, stop it, would say, you know, let's remember, we can't really foresee how this could help us create all types of new work. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a super interesting question. And on some level, what this will come down to is, do you believe that what AI is going to fundamentally do is allow us to do the same things we currently do, but to replace the jobs that exist today to do it? Or do you think that AI is going to bring sort of superhuman productivity to the people doing jobs and that rather than reducing or eliminating jobs, what's actually going to happen is our productivity is going to skyrocket and we're going to be able to do things that that weren't possible. I think it's an open question and it's sort of field by field, uh, sort of like Steve was alluding to. We don't really know exactly what's going to happen in terms of the way the technology itself was going to develop. but as an optimist about technology and its impact on humanity, I tend to believe that in more cases than not, what's gonna end up happening is that people will have incredibly increased ability to produce things and we're gonna see humans do things that weren't previously possible. And it, it, it could be an incredibly uh, spectacular moment for us. Anything, Jack, you'd add from kind of the data that you're seeing now in terms, listen, often actually periods of recession, which you probably had into, you could argue have already been in, are times when corporations do want to make big productivity enhancements. Maybe they're more open to, okay, we're gonna invest in a new piece of technology because we have to kind of figure out how to get through this macro event. Any workflow commentary that you would say you're seeing firsthand or is it way too early stages? It's early stages and it's an interesting moment in time because we simultaneously are coming off the heels of several quarters of challenging macro times and people worried about sort of ongoing recession mixed with this incredible new technology that is coming into the future. So we're sort of in this crux moment in time with both of those going on. And I think it's it's hard to say at the moment. You know, is everyone just quitting their job, Steve? The CEOs just say, forget it. I don't want to deal with it. I mean, I'm joking, but do, have you seen the numbers? The numbers of CEOs leaving once again, is is it a, the last time I think it, we saw a spike was right before the pandemic hit. Yeah, but, but you know, back to Jack's right on this. I mean, this this is going to automate the ordinary stuff, which allows human beings to take a step up and do stuff that's more extraordinary, which means innovation and it means productivity. Last time we saw this kind of 
evolution was through the introduction of all of the basics now that we take for granted in personal computing in the 90s. And we saw a 100 basis point impact to GDP from productivity gains. And that's what we're looking at as a possibility here with AI. Um, you know, as it relates to CEOs, I think we're at a period in time where we, in February, where we had the highest CEO turnover in years. And you, you, you look at the, the stats and it's basically people who have been in uh, not-for-profits, hospitals, tech, financials, areas of stress, first of all, with the pandemic, then with the banking crisis and so forth. What is interesting to look at is that the tenure is even longer than normal. So you're seeing nine to 10 years versus six to seven, which means these think, CEOs have been held in place longer. Steve, do you think that's in part because some stayed on to guide their companies through? The, so did, did the pandemic actually stop the normal leadership turnover? Well, I think that's just it. I, Kelly, I think that I think there have been multiple crises here where boards and CEOs have said we've got to we've got to maintain our leadership in place. We've got to get through this. And now there's a pause. There's there's a there's a bit of a gap in the action now, and people are taking the the opportunity to move to the next generation, which is great because you're seeing a higher proportion of women and internal candidates finally get their chance. So I think it's very positive, but I think it has been because people have been hanging on trying to get through these crises. Quick last word, Jack. I think that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of what we're feeling there with CEOs, like in so many roles uh, throughout companies, is it's just an unbelievably different environment than we were working in 12 or 24 months ago. And so I think for tons of reasons, whether because the way that the field is playing out, the way people are feeling about their roles, what the company needs from them, there's just been so much change that we're seeing a lot of that sort of pent up stability that existed during the pandemic is sort of unlocking now. And we're seeing that kind of kind of throughout. And I think in many ways, it'll be a healthy thing. Yeah, I noticed it even locally, you know, schools, restaurants, that kind of thing. Uh, suddenly there's turnover. Stephen Jack, thank you both for your time today. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys you. both. Coming up, the other hits to Google's business from the threat of losing search engine market share to a regulatory headache in Europe. We've got the latest in today's check check. Shares are actually off their lows. That's interesting, too. We'll talk about it. And don't miss CNBC's newest show, Last Call with Brian Sullivan. You can catch it weeknights at 7 p.m. Eastern here on CNBC. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Alphabet sinking today. They were down nearly 4% earlier on a report that Samsung has considered replacing Google as the default search engine on its devices. Billions of dollars in revenue, of course, is at stake. And that's the subject of today's tech check with our own Deirdre Bosa. Good to see you again, Deirdre. And uh, so this was considered, is being considered. What do we know? <laughs> well, reportedly, it was considered. Samsung didn't go ahead with it. But even the idea that they could consider such a thought kicking Google out of the system for a bing. Um, that was enough, the New York Times says, to create some panic inside of Google because Google has essentially spent billions and billions of dollars over the years and spends it each year to sort of have this insurmountable moat, this moat that gives them more than 90% of the search market. They pay Samsung, they pay Apple for that privilege to be the default search engine. So again, you, we get back to this narrative uh, Google versus Microsoft, ChatGPT versus Bard, and could Microsoft be disrupting sort of the best, one of the best business models the world has ever seen, which is Google search. And that is the fear here for investors, why you're seeing Alphabet stock was down as much as 4% earlier today. If I'm not mistaken, is it here in the U.S. or in Europe, Deirdre, where regulators are also looking at the search business and the deals Google has struck with all of the, that's why this timing is so ironic. Maybe it's because of the regulatory probe, but 
I mean, if, if these parties all entered Apple, of course, obviously, Safari is a, is a primary one. So whether or not they entered into these uh, con contracts because they were mutually beneficial in the past, right. maybe now there is a somewhat viable alternative. And the other irony, and uh, we know that the Bing data, that they <laughs> haven't been gaining share, that they, people would exactly. try it out, and then they go back to Google, and I don't know, maybe that's why the shares are off the lows. Yes. And I mean, uh, earlier this morning, I was saying, let's go to back to the beginning of the year when this narrative emerged that, you know, Microsoft could dethrone Google eventually or hurt that business model. Um, that hasn't played out. We're still in very early stages. They're both up 19 percent. So net net hasn't really changed the story much there. And even there was a note today from Morgan Stanley saying that chat GPT, generative AI, BART is going to be only good for Google's business in the long run. But it is so early on. And I think that because Google search has been such this fantastic business, so lucrative. The margins are incredible. The idea that it may be hindered somewhat or encroached upon by a competitor like Microsoft, which also has billions and billions of dollars to spend, and by the way, is moving a lot faster on the generative AI front, has captured the imagination, had their moment more so than a Google that has been spending years on this and called themselves an AI company first. So again, has to do with the rollout and sort of the potential going forward. Investors could be looking at this right now and saying, you know, just referring to that New York Times article, there's really panic on something that Google has been working on. What does that mean for the future? Future for sure. how this is going to play out in future years. Do you think it was entirely self-serving for Google's CEO to give 60 Minutes this interview and warn about big dangers to society when it's in their own self-interest for the other competitors to have to slow down their AI efforts that seem to be ahead of Google's? Or to put it differently, every time we see an open letter from people who are yeah. worried about it, is it just sour grapes because they're not the ones who were out in front with this technology? Many would argue that those fears, the caution, is well-placed. It is very real. This is moving so, so quickly. We don't yet know the ramifications. And we've seen what happened when we moved quickly and broke things in terms of social media. It takes so long for regulation to catch up with all of these unintended consequences. So, yes, it is in Senator Pichai's interest to give an interview and say that we have to be responsible, we have to be cautionary. I think that that is very real. That is the tone that Alphabet has struck maybe to its advantage or disadvantage because Satya Nadella, remember, he says things like he wants to make Google dance, and he certainly has. So he's maybe a little more brash, but he would argue that the opportunity is so great that you don't want to slow down on that either. You have to make sure that you are taking that opportunity and all the good things that generative AI is going to provide to society. So definitely is this push and pull. I think that Google is being genuine when they say that there's real responsibility and cautionary um, issues to look at here. But that is the narrative that they are giving out here. And yeah. whether or not it's working for them, I mean, when we look at the stock price, again, they've been neck and neck over the longer run. Well, I thought Sam Lesson had some interesting proposals today. We got him tomorrow. We're going to talk to him about it. Can we, re we reset or restart on AI? People opt into their data. Uh, that's for then. Deirdre, for now, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Deirdre Bosa with Tech Check. Still ahead, investors continued to yank money out of muni bonds last week. But my next guest sees opportunities. There are two sectors in particular she's watching closely right now. She tells us what they are next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Muni funds have now seen eight straight weeks of withdrawals, but my next guest says there are plenty of opportunities, and she has two sectors in particular she's watching closely. Joining me now is Jennifer Johnson, Franklin Templeton, Senior Vice President and Director of Muni Bond Research. Jennifer, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. First of all, why is everyone fleeing out of Muni Bonds? What gives? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a great question. Obviously, with um, the way the market is performing, we've actually outperformed treasuries. And so we're kind of wondering why everybody's sitting on the sideline and not trying to get in. Are they just yield hungry? I mean, is it is it concerns about the quality of the munis? Is it concerns about rates moving higher? Or do they just think, why be involved in munis when I can go get 4% on Apple's new product or whatever? Yeah, so I think I think there's actually a lot of things factoring into it. Part of it being some, you know, concerns around the banking crisis and you know what impact that could have, um, as well as the fact that you know rates have been rising, inflation has been up, and a target of what the Fed is trying to do. So all those factors I think are keeping people on the sidelines. Um, it's going to be an interesting week this week. In fact, we have a very large supply uh, hitting the muni market this week, about $12.5 billion. It's the biggest uh, week of the year. So we'll see how that all gets digested. So where would you say are that we, we kind of mentioned there's a couple of places in particular you would tell people to look. What are those places? So the, there's a couple of sectors that we're eyeing carefully. And, you know, one of the things that we say is when you have a really strong research staff like we do, we enjoy digging in deep into these credits and really trying to understand the nuance between them. As we come off of COVID, which was really an outstanding period of time from a fundamental perspective, uh, credits across the muni spectrum are doing better than they were pre-pandemic. Uh, federal COVID aid uh, is a large reason why that um, is the case. It helped uh, cities and states and counties and transit, all different types of issuers get through the pandemic, regardless of you know ridership trends or whatever, and allow them to avoid default um, and really focus on trying to get essential workers where they wanted to go. But that aid has, is starting to, uh, people have to wean themselves off of that. And the two sectors we're watching closely are really uh, nonprofit healthcare hmm. and transportation. Hmm. I'll take nonprofit healthcare first. Uh, Obviously, this was, you know, a central and extremely important sector as we went through COVID. And that is, you know, no nothing to, um, you know, be upset about. But uh, the pressures from inflation and the strong labor market had make it very difficult to get uh, enough workers to uh, work. And so hospitals have to go to agency or traveling nurses, as many people may know them as. And that's expensive. Sure. And so it's been eating into margin. Um, so we continue to watch that sector and see, you know, how they are from a regional perspective, you know, getting more employees hired locally so they can um, wean themselves off of. And I can't the, imagine that people are rushing in and saying, hey, let me, you know, let me load up on New York City subway debt, for instance, or whoever the you know, provider is. Is that true across the board, though? So it's not a true across the board. We're seeing a lot of regional differences. Um, and in terms of ridership, ridership for mass transit has not come back. And that's pretty much across the board, but we're seeing it exacerbated in certain communities that have really seen adjustments in, you know, returning to office yeah. um, versus work from home. Uh, we hear a lot about commercial real estate. So for mass transit, trying to get riders has been a challenge. And now that the COVID aid is starting to um, expire, it's up to these transit agencies to figure out how they're going to balance their budget, whether it's service cuts, additional tax revenue, or more state local aid. Yeah. And then Speaker McCarthy on our air this morning saying he wants to see people return on spent COVID aid. So uh, but maybe now, you know what, now I understand why muni investors are nervous. No, <laughs> there's a lot more <laughs> going on than just uh, nonprofit hospitals and transit. Jennifer, appreciate the granularity. Thanks for your time today. 
Thank you for having me. Jennifer Johnson joining us from Franklin Templeton. And that does it for The Exchange today. Up next on Power Lunch, Netflix bombing its second date with that live event. And they've got earnings tomorrow. What would happen if they tried to stream live sports? I'll talk to Dom about that next. He's in for Ty. There he is getting ready. We'll see you after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.